Okay. A reading from Exodus 21 through 2 and 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Glad to be back with you and thankful to have an opportunity words this morning. Uh, pray with me as we return to the Ten Commandments. Today we'll be looking at the Sixth Commandment. Let's pray together. Father, you are light and love. And Lord, though there's so much trouble in our hearts and trouble in our streets, our nation around our world, Lord, you still are sovereign, upholding all that we hold near and dear. Lord, you uphold us. Thank you for keeping us close to your heart to bring us to worship in your name today. Bless us, we pray, God, as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking about, should I reintroduce myself? I don't think I've done that. I'm Yancey, one of the pastors here. If you don't know me, I'd love to get to know you. As we look at God's word, uh, it made me think about <clears throat> what we truly value in life. What do we value? Who do we value uh, in life? You know, there are two midwives in Exodus chapter 2 that were given a task. Their names were Shifra and Pua. And they were given a task to be midwives to the Hebrew uh, families. The king of Egypt said to them, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But Shifra and Pua feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. Hallelujah. The king was afraid that the Hebrew people would become so vast in number that they would raise up against them and make war or join their enemies and make war. So when the king saw that the midwives did not carry out this command, he said to them, why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? They answered Pharaoh shrewdly, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with these two sisters well. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God more than man, he gave them families of their own. The Pharaoh came up with a different plan, though, to end the life of these male children. He commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Friends, in every generation since the beginning of man, there has been this unauthorized taking of life of God's people, which is sin against God. Murder has been 
in the heart of a corrupt people ever since the fall of man. But God has been faithful in his declaration to save lives. God proclaims from the beginning to the end, I am the Lord of life. And so God spoke these ten words to his people that he had just brought out of the land of Egypt, brought out of the house of slavery. God delivers his people from the bondage of death, <clears throat> excuse me, and the threat of murder by bringing them to life itself, to himself, who is life. The Lord loves life. We only can look around us, hear the sounds and the noises of creation, look at the stars, feel the movement of your bodies. He loves life, and we see that from the very beginning. As he creates, things burst on, on scene as he commands it so. And it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's very good. So he creates life, sustains it, and saves it. So the sixth commandment is all about the importance of flourishing. It's all about what God values. And throughout this commandment, let's learn the meaning of murder, the heart of it, and the rescuer from murder. The meaning of murder, God says, you shall not murder. The Old Testament teaching on the penalty for murder is summarized in this commandment. It's two words in the original language, no murder. The translation of the Hebrew word for murder refers to criminal killing of another person. It also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. The English Standard Version that we use, some of us use, it translates, you shall not murder. So friends, to murder is the intentional and unintentional killing of another person without authorization from God. Why does God place a prohibition on murder? It's obvious to us who have sustained it, who have seen it ourselves, who have felt it. Why does God place this prohibition? Because murder destroys the image of God. Therefore, it is a direct sin, insult, and offense against God himself. In Genesis 9, 5 and 6, God declares a man after the flood, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. A beautiful thing that he has done by making us, even as we're broken, in his own image. So God would not have his image destroyed. As one theologian states, the real dignity and worth of human life consists in man's bearing the divine image. Even today, in spite of the fall, the image of God exists in man. Although in damaged form, thus the most heinous element in sin of murder is its contempt of God and the destruction of a human life which bears his image. Man and beast. Did you notice that? The beast will have to give an account. 
for sinning against God through the murder of a person. The penalty is a life of the man or the beast. Murder is a crime against God. Secondly, murder hinders the flourishing of God's people. And so after the flood, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. So God wants there to be a flourishing, a multiplication of his people, of his creation, especially his people, that nothing would be hindered in his plans of making glory in the earth in his name, and that nothing would hinder his plan of us knowing him. Third reason. Murder is a crime against the well-being of humanity. Murder promotes disunity, separation. It promotes heartache and pain. In 1 John 3, we, we see that John writes, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, murdered his own brother. And why did he murder him, John writes? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abide in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So this prohibition is for the well-being of you and me, so that we would know that the depths and the heights of God's love, so that we will not feel the threat of death coming from one man or one woman to another, but that we may know love, that the hate in our hearts will be extinguished by love, that it will not carry on and move us to destroy one another. So murder destroys the image of God. It hinders the flourishing of his people, and it's a crime against the well-being of humanity. And sometimes murder is unintentional. Sometimes there are accidents that happen, and God records that in the law, that there are times when it's, an accident happens, and so God set up these cities of refuge for his people, three in the land of Canaan and three beyond the Jordan River. That if someone accidentally murders another person, he can flee to one of these cities and be saved there against the avenger, the next of kin of the person that he murdered accidentally. And so why is that important? Because the avenger has a right to be upset that a loved one has been killed, unintentionally even. 
And so God set it up so that this, this event of unintentionally killing someone, killing someone mistakenly, it would not be a fault against the person who did the killing. And so God provided a refuge, a safe place for them to run to for a time. And then after their priest passes away, then they can go back into society, go back into the city. You see, even unintentional murder is murder. And God did not want any type of murder to profane his holy land. He did not want any blood spilled upon his holy land. And so he provided a way out. And there are, there are times when we recognize that murder is indeed necessary. Unlawful murder is punishable by death, which is the responsibility of the governing authorities instituted by God. So this is lawful murder, actually, punishable by death. And God has given this responsibility to the state, to the governing authorities, to the highest ruler of the land. We see here in Numbers 35 that God gave this responsibility to his people as well. You shall not accept ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. So we see this type of capital punishment was ordained by God, but was given carefully to those who would be responsible for preserving life. Excuse me, let me grab some water here. No need to suffer with the dryness, right? And so even in Romans 13, we see that God talking about the governing authorities, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So God has given this responsibility for our sake so that life may be preserved, so that life may flourish, so that there be consequences for actions, so that the, the fall of man may be pushed against, so that we would know that there's accountability for our actions, so that we would know that God really does care. There are opportunities as well for us to see uh, throughout scripture, that murder is necessary in the case of self-defense. It's lawful in these cases. And the, we have to be careful with this, right? Because we know the heart is deceitful, and we can dream up any type of entitlement and justification for why we would murder another person. But there are times when perhaps someone, like the example given in Exodus 22, if a thief is found breaking in, your home, and is struck so he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. And so you see, in the case of protecting oneself in the night, protecting oneself when he's cornered, you have no other choice but to preserve your life. This is what one theologian had to say about this. The scripture commands a person to love his neighbor as himself, that is, love for one's neighbor is to be kept in balance 
with a proper love for oneself. The person who will let himself be murdered by a criminal without attempting self-defense loves his neighbor too much and does not love himself enough. God wants there to be careful preservation of life, that we will have wisdom around how we are to protect ourselves so that our conscience may be clear of any type of blood guilt. What does God call for in this command to not murder? We've been talking about it already. We have a responsibility to preserve life. Uh, One commentator said this on the Sixth Commandment, that this means all effort directly or indirectly aimed at preserving human life, accepting such efforts as may be wrong because forbidden by God's law. Thus, it is our duty to try to preserve our own and our neighbor's life, but not by telling a lie, not by denying Christ, not by betraying or God-given, our God-given responsibility to our country, we may not do evil that good may come in order to save our own or some other person's life. It's not about doing evil that good may come. That's out of order. Even Peter writes about this. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And that is exactly where God wants us to be, alive in the spirit. So when we are careful to take on this responsibility, to care for the life of, of another person, or to care for our lives, we want there to be the Spirit's leadership in our life. So we are careful to do so. We want to be alive in the Spirit so that we are careful about someone else's life in our own. God also calls for us to resist any type of unjust destruction of human life. And I, I love how the Bible talks about this because in Deuteronomy 22, if you're building a house, you know, you can go out on your rooftop and, and chill like Peter did one day when he saw a vision, chilling on the rooftop. But the instruction is to make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, house if anyone should fall from it. You know, this parapet is a low wall, a railing, a protection for someone who would go up there so they won't fall off. We see the same thing for those who own pools. You want to have a fence around your pool so that someone doesn't stumble in your backyard and accidentally fall in. You want to go to lengths to protect life. In the same way, when it snows, what do most people do? They shovel the sidewalk because people might want to walk while it's snowing. A walk, take a walk and, you know, I. This happened to us last time it snowed, well, time before last. I was a bit slow on clearing the snow out. And so, 
And so I had to work a little harder to chip away some of the ice. That's a lot of hard work. I missed that window. And then I saw an elderly person taking a walk. And they had to literally walk around my patch of snow there in front of my house and in order to save themselves from slipping and walking around. And I felt convicted by that, you know? I really did because I thought, man, what if someone does come and slip on this ice? I need to care for my neighbor a little better. So I got out there and started chipping away at the ice again. I was like, and I was committed to doing it. But in like manner, we have guardrails on our steps, right? So someone's walking up the steps. They won't just fall. You know, we have warning signs all around the city, you know, for pedestrians walking on the streets. And that's why we, we have these there. Uh, we have traffic cameras for the protection of people, speed limit signs. Uh, we have police patrolling. We, we have people obeying the stop lights and the walk signs. And this, it is unfortunate that there are times when accidents do happen out of negligence or out of someone taking a risk on the road. But most of the time, we are pretty safe walking around because God keeps us safe. God guards us as we are walking about, as we are driving about. And so we are to resist unjust destruction of human life. Thirdly, we must guard ourselves against destruction, desires, passion, and temptations. We must live in moderation, having just enough or enjoying just enough. And this is hard to do because in God's great green world, there are so many good things, and we want more of it. We want to enjoy more times of celebration. We, we, we want to be able to drink what we want, eat what we want, go where we want. We want to indulge because we have a huge desire. But God knows that if we indulge so much, it will make us sick. It will, it will lead us not to guard our lives and our bodies. We will not take care of ourselves if we did that. And sometimes the things that we use as coping mechanisms, they turn into addictions, don't they? You know, I had a professor once, and he and his wife, they noticed that they would enjoy a glass of wine every night with their meal. Then they would enjoy a couple of glasses of wine for a couple of months there. They were going through a couple of bottles a wine a week, and they notice that we need to take a fast from wine. We enjoy wine, but we don't want wine to take over our lives. It can be the same way with overeating, you know, going to your favorite restaurant, eating your favorite meal. We would ruin ourselves and ruin our enjoyment of whatever we have by overindulging in it. So we are to guard ourselves from overly doing things, overly giving in to the passions of our hearts. God instructs us to be content with what we have and live in moderation. And we are to choose to live wisely. The Bible speaks about this in Ephesians 5. Look carefully how you walk, how you walk in Christ, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This is why we make the best use of time. This is why we live wise lives. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, wild living. But instead, be filled with the Spirit, attending to one another, addressing one another with, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, being in community together so that we can hold each other accountable, being in community together so that we can be wise together, not to judge one another, but to encourage each other, to pick one another up so that we can live joyful lives together, celebrating life as it is, celebrating the Lord. So open up your homes, open up your hearts, and let's do this together, choosing to live wisely for the guarding of our lives. All unjust taken away of life of any human being, the Bible calls wicked. That's a little bit about the meaning of murder, but let's go into looking at the heart of murder. But before we look at that, I want to address a few outward expressions of murder, things that are common in our culture to see, uh, things that we know too well that lead to a lot of heartache and pain, Things that lead us to comfort one another and be sad first and, and sympathetic towards one another. The first outward expression is homicide. We've been talking about it a little bit. The unlawful taking of another person's life. And you know, as we looked at, as I looked at the research uh, this past week, I noticed that the homicide rates have been on the decline over the past couple of years. Praise God. But as we know, one murder is too many. We don't want there to be any, but we're realistic that we're in a broken world. And so thank God that it's on the decline. And even last year in our district, there were about 274 cases of homicide reported. So far this year, there have been 20. And there have been a lot of violent, other violent crimes as well. But you know, we have about, you know, over half of a million people in our district and so what we're looking at here in comparison is a really low number, but it is still a number that's high enough to cause us to grieve, to lament what we see, to be watchful as well. The next one is suicide, and this is the taking of one's life, your, your, your own life. And this is a battle for so many people in our day and age. Uh, even last year, more than 50,000 Americans died by suicide. This is a sobering thought. There's suicidal ideation, the pondering. That's depression that fuels it. And, and it, is, it is taking us away. It is sweeping us away. It is leading us to have more sadness because of the thoughts in our minds about are we valued? You know, does anyone care? Times where we feel like a failure. These thoughts may come up, and they come out of nowhere. But God has declared that every life is his, and so we don't have a right to do it. But we do understand that we are broken, that we are fallen, and that temptation is there. So we need one another to encourage each other, to say that you do matter because of Christ. You do matter because I see you and I love you. You do matter because I want to be in community with you, brother, sister, neighbor. You do matter. Let's live this life together. Let's know the Lord together. 
The third one that I'll highlight is abortion. And this is the taking of the life of the unborn in the womb. A lot of controversy around this one. Many churches have pushed back on this. And again, we move into these types of things with a lot of sympathy of heart, with a lot of compassion of heart, knowing that these are not easy decisions for anyone. But God is the one who says, to, even to Jeremiah in chapter 1, he says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So we see here that even before conception, and even at conception, and even when Jeremiah was born, God knew him. What does this tell us? That whenever conception happens, this is God's idea. This is what God has put into motion. And man is not to stop it. And there are so many cases where we wrestle with this. And there may be some of us who have had to face this in our own lives. This type, this type of experience is heartbreaking. It's hard. And some of us are racked with guilt because maybe of the decisions that we've had to make in these circumstances. And then there, there still is this idea of preservation of life. Because sometimes it does come down to the mother's life or the baby's life. Such a hard decision to make. But God wants there to be a preservation of life. It happened with one of our friends. She had learned from the doctor that her child may be stillborn. And she was filled with grief. Many of our friends came around her and encouraged her. We were there with her as a community. We didn't know what was going to be the outcome. And, you know, of course, abortion was one of the options that were given medically. But she made a decision that she would move through the pregnancy. And she made a decision to give birth, and she did, to a beautiful baby girl who's still alive to this day. And that's been about 10 years ago. Friends, Hard decisions to make, hard situations to be, be in. And so we do need the Spirit of God to lead us through. We need the community of God to be comforting. Even, even in situations at the end of life, when people are making the decision, we pray for mercy for our elderly, for those that are in Christ. We do pray that God would be merciful if they're in deep and abiding pain. But it is not our duty, as we learn through Scripture, to take away another person's life. It's not their duty to take away their own lives. And so we have a responsibility to show lots of love, to show that we really do care, to move away from a heart that says we don't care to a heart that says, yes, I'll be here for you. Life is worth it. Life is valuable. For this is the reason we are made in God's image, because God has put his value upon our hearts. And there are the, those are some of the outward expressions, and these are some of the inward expressions. And Jesus taught us through Matthew chapter 5 that 
for the one that murdered, they will see judgment. But he also said that about anger. So anger seems to be <clears throat> the seedbed for murder. It starts in the heart. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. Anger is murder from the heart. To say Raka, that means that someone is stupid or an idiot. It is contempt for the mind. It's a term of abuse. It's abusive language that one would use from a heart of hatred for his brother, sister, or neighbor. To say that you, you fool is to say that one is a scoundrel or that he is worthless. It is the contempt for the heart and the character of a person. God would not have us live in this way, harboring bitterness in our hearts. And as we know from anger, we become the container that begins to rot. Even as we are holding on to anger towards somebody else, we want them to pay. But we, in turn, pay in our own hearts. I believe that's, that's the reason we are so intricately tied together as humans. It's like, if I'm angry with you and then I hold on to bitterness of heart, I'm going to rot. You're going to live your life. You're not going to know that I'm angry with you if I'm harboring bitterness. But you may know it if I say that you are stupid or an idiot using abusive language to cut you down, to shut you out. And sometimes this happens all too often in our households, doesn't it? It may be towards a friend of ours that we are mad with, and we cut them down in our hearts, or we cut them down with our words, slashing them apart. It happens in parenting, where children are very vulnerable in the sight of God. Jesus don't want us to hinder them at all from coming to him. But there are times when we say things right off the bat to our children that cuts them down, and they end up feeling worthless, like an outsider. They feel like, does my daddy like me? Does my mommy want me? And then we put them on the hamster wheel of doing the right things to measure up so that they will not experience our anger, experience our hate, experience our cutting abusive words. And then there may be emotional abuse as well. That's just as hatred in the heart where you may be in a relationship with someone and this may be the case for you where you're choosing not to relent, not to forgive, not to see the person as an image bearer of God, but instead as an enemy of your soul. And granted, we have to protect ourselves, don't we? We have to put ourselves in positions where we are not hurt by someone else that we love. We have to, as the Bible says, guard our hearts. We have to do those things because we want to preserve life. But when we begin to lash out and to say cutting and biting words, when we begin to slander and gossip, hold malice in our hearts, now we have moved into this area of being angry from our heart and murdering one another. God would not allow it. And this type of murder requires a human and even divine punishment. So God would not have us insult and murder with our minds. 
you will not have us say to our brothers and sisters that they are foolish or murder their character. Theologian Dan Doriani states, if Raka insults the brains, fool insults the heart, together they imply that someone is worthless, good for nothing. At a literal level, we should avoid contemptuous words, but we should shun every whiff of condescension. We should treat no one, whether young or old, whether weak in the mind or weak in the body, as if he has no value. You have value, friends, because God has said so. You have value because you are made in his image. You have value because he has spoken to your heart that you are mine. Christ died for you. You have value because your life is not your own, and we can celebrate that. We need to belong to our Lord. He's the only one that will provide and care for us. You have value, and don't you forget it. That's why Jesus said anyone who insults a brother, his brother will be liable to the council, which in those days was the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling court in Israel. Or hatred of another person makes us liable to the court of God and the hell of fire, meaning God's fiery judgment. God is serious about how we treat one another. But what makes us so angry? There are many things. There are many things that makes us so angry. James talks about this in James chapter 4. One of the things is that we desire something and we don't have it. We don't get it. So we murder. We're angry in our hearts. Because what we have going on in our hearts is our own motives. To spend whatever we get on our own pleasures. It's selfishness. And there are other times where we become so upset and murderous in our hearts when we feel like Life is out of control, and we want there to be some control. And we fuel our bodies and our hearts with visceral hate and anger, and we're in a disposition of, of anger. Something can easily trigger us to blow up and explode at someone, or when we're in our car driving, or when we're in our workplace. You know, we have to ask ourselves the question, what type of husband am I? What type of words do I give to my wife? We have to ask ourselves the question, what type of boss am I, a co-worker? Who do I avoid? Who do I stay away from? Who do I micromanage? Because I have to feel like I'm in control. We have to ask ourselves the question, am I honest with God about my need for him? Or am I just holding on to my anger? Because that's the thing that God encourages us to do. He, he encourages us that if we need to deal with our murderous, angers, and contemptuous hearts, the first thing that we need to do is ask for God's help. We need to pray. We need to come to him and pray for the wisdom that will heal our anger. We need to pray through the word of God and listen to God humbling ourselves to him. The second thing is to humble ourselves to him. James says we are to submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to our Father who loves us. We are to go through this cleansing process, our hearts and mind and souls, asking God to take it all away. We are to lament. Praise God, we're in a season of 
lament. Let's lean into that because that opens us up to, to feel the release and the relief from our own murderous heart and, our, and the anger that plagues us so. And friends, we need to hold on to the promise of God's exaltation. He says in due time, he will exalt us. God would do the exalting. But as it pertains to those who persecute us, the Bible says we are to bless them and not curse them. We are to keep on rejoicing with one another and weeping with one another. We are to live in harmony together with each other. We are to refrain from repaying evil for evil, but to give honor to all in the sight of God. Friends, God says, leave room for his anger. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. Someone may have moved against you, and you may be hurt this morning. God says, I will repay. And you may be impatient with that. God, you may be asking God, do it quickly, O Lord. But as you ask God to do it quickly, ask him to bring the comfort into your own heart. So the meaning of murder, the heart of murder, the rescue, the rescuer from murder is God himself. Jesus is the one that rescues us from a murderous heart. Jesus, when he was living on earth, he knew that he would be persecuted, endure mockings, and being spat upon. He knew he would be flogged and mistreated. He knew the, the vile insults would come to him. So he's able to sympathize with our own hearts. He's able to come to where we are. And Jesus decided to go all the way to the cross on your behalf, on my behalf. He died for our sins. And it's there that Jesus felt the eternal wrath of God. He died as a criminal on the Roman cross. Jesus died a death that was unjust, but he died so that we can be the ones who are justified in the sight of God and not experience the vengeance, the wrath of God. That's what we deserve, but Christ covers us. Christ bled for us. He died for us. And surely as Christ resurrected from the grave, friends, we too will be resurrected with him one day, bodily, new bodies with Jesus, free from murderous hearts, free from crime, free from homicide, free from having to make hard decisions, free, free from the anguish of our hearts that lead to sadness. Because every single anger, angry disposition that we have, it means something. Anger in, in, in the present means that we're frustrated. Anger that results from the past means that we've been hurt by something. Anger in the future means that we're anxious. But God holds us, and he carries us, and he teaches us how to love. So friends, let's, let us love like Christ, who died, gave up his life, gave up his spirit, willingly entrusting himself to the one who knew would give life and life everlasting. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for your listening ear this morning.
but we thank you for speaking, most importantly, to our hearts. Jesus, we need you. We need you to come to where the fire is the most in our hearts. God, we, we, we need you to come, Father, and extinguish that fire that lead us astray so that we can be present with you, Jesus, and know that you are the one who carries us and you are the one who promises to be with us. So come, Lord Jesus, come to our hearts. Keep us in the freedom of your love, we pray. Amen.